Welcome to the What's What Weekly Wrap-Up, a podcast dedicated to features exclusively from the WFUV newsroom. I'm Robin Shannon. Let's get started. New York is facing an immigration crisis right now. Thousands of migrants from Texas and Arizona are being bused to northeast cities, including New York. WFUV's David Escobar sits down with Fordham professor Carrie Kasten. They talk about her work at the southern border, as well as the resources needed to provide for migrants. So... As somebody who's been on the ground with those asylum seekers, you've done work in both New York at the border. I'm just kind of curious, like, what kind of impact does that journey really, how does that take a toll on someone? Um, Well, I think it's different. It depends on the person. Um, It depends where they are in their journey. Some people, I'm thinking about uh, the people we met in January at the Kino Border Initiative. They have a shelter that I think can house like 50 to 100 people. But at the time, because of COVID restrictions, they were really housing like three families. One of the families told a very long story and clearly they were working through it. And really the the brother was the spokesperson and he told this story um, about extortion and violence. And um, it really like, it's it's hard to imagine what these people are have lived through. And the other woman was very silent and didn't just said, this is where I'm from, um, I am fleeing violence, and, and pretty much left it at that. So, you know, I obviously, the first thing in my mind is when people are moving from the U.S., but then even further, like, let's say New York, D.C., we've been seeing that recently. Besides getting somebody housing, what kinds of resources do people need when they come to a place like New York? The resources that we have federally and in our state systems are like pretty much non-existent. I mean, I think this is what Eric Adams is finding that there's not like an apparatus to help people process their paperwork. Um, And so there's a shortage of lawyers, there's a shortage of social workers, there's a shortage of, of services. So they need translation and they need legal resources. The system of applying for asylum is so complex. You know, if you go to these web pages and look at the the asylum forms, it doesn't make sense to a native English speaker with a college degree, right? And even the websites are made. I mean, I've had lots of students work doing translation of of forms for people um, and the websites crash all the time. And there is a question, is this intentional? Are these government institutions intentionally making it challenging to find the right form, to download the right form? All the problems that you have with fillable and unfillable PDFs, which are frustrating and annoying to all of us. Why don't these forms work better? Is this intentional? Um, And so people are not going to really understand the extent of their trauma until they're, they're like way beyond this process. That was WFUV's David Escobar and Fordham professor Carrie Kasten. They discuss the challenges asylum seekers are facing both in New York and at the southern border. You know, mobster movies are a staple of film culture. WFUV's Madison Colombo got the chance to talk with actor and playwright Chaz Palminteri. They discuss his being the creative mind behind the film A Bronx Tale and the story's return to the stage. Picture an iconic mobster movie. Street smart criminals, some morally gray actions, and usually an appearance from Robert De Niro. Another thing most of them have in common? New York City. From The Godfather to Goodfellas, the city has been the cultural hub of the mobster genre. And one of those iconic films took place just a short walk away from the FUV studio. And I learned the greatest gift of all. The saddest thing in life is wasted talent. And the choices that you make 
will shape your life forever. But you can ask anybody from my neighborhood, and they'll just tell you. This is just another Bronx tale. Premiering in 1993, A Bronx Tale pays homage to Bronx life in the 60s, touching on themes of racism and, of course, wasted talent, telling the story of a young boy stuck between the alluring life of mobsters and the morality of being a hard-working man. A Bronx Tale quickly gained recognition as one of the greatest New York mobster films. You gotta do what your heart tells you to do. I'm gonna tell you something right now. You only allowed three great women in your lifetime. They come along like the great fighters, once every 10 years. Rocky Marciano, Sugar Ray Robinson, Joe Lewis. Sometimes you get them all at once. Me, I had my three when I was 16. That happens, what do you want to know? That's Chaz Palminteri, who wrote and starred in the film that's partially based on his own Bronx childhood. I got to sit down with Palminteri to talk about the powerful film and his return to New York City in the one-man stage version of the story. So your play, A Bronx Tale, is pretty much legendary. It's the New York staple. So can you tell me a little bit about how you came up with the storyline? You've said in the past it's a little autobiographical. Yes, very much. Yes. So can you explain how you kind of put the play together? Well, the one-man show was the first. It was 1988. I was in L.A. Mm -hmm. First, I was in New York first, working as an actor, you know, getting a job, then not getting a job for a long time, getting another job. You know, as any actor does, you stop. I was studying at the actor's studio in New York. And then finally I decided to go to L.A. and try my luck there. I got lucky right away. I got on Hill Street Blues, and I got I, that's before your time. And that's <laughs> then I got on a show called Madlock, and then Dallas, and, and then I did a TV series and a show called Peter Gunn. And but it would hold me for another six months, four months, five months, because you know you make a lot of money when you work. And then finally I ran out of money, so I got a job as a doorman again, because that's what I used to, you know, that's what I did. And, and then one night I was at working the door, and a very famous I didn't know he was famous. He was trying to get into his own party. I didn't know who it was. I didn't let him in because he was very rude to me. And the guy's name was Swifty Lazar. Swifty Lazar, if you look him up on Google, was the biggest agent in the world at the time. And I just told him he couldn't come into his own party. <laughs> and he told me I was going to be fired in 15 minutes. Just like he said, I got fired in 15 minutes. <sighs> so I went back to my little apartment in North Hollywood. And I said, what am I going to do? This is like 30-something years ago. And I said, well, you know, if they won't give me a great part, then I'll write one myself. So I started writing about this killing that I saw when I was nine years old, almost 10 I was. And I wrote about this killing, and I performed it for my theater workshop in L.A. And they loved it. And each week I would write a little more. I would perform it for them, and people would comment, give notes on it. And at the end of almost a year, I had 90 minutes of this one-man show. I called a friend. He sent me some money to produce it. I produced it. Madison, and as soon as I did that show, my career just, like, exploded. <laughs> they, but here was the thing. They offered me... I had no money in the bank at the time. I had, like, $200 in the bank. And they offered me $250,000 to walk away from it. I said no. They said... Because they wanted me to just give them the thing. And, and I can't play Sonny, and I can't write the screenplay. And I said, no, it's my life. I want to write about it. Yeah. They said, no, forget it. I said, forget it then. I walked away. Then they went up to 500000 <laughs> Then they went up to $1 million. Wow. And I still said no. Then finally, one night I was doing it. Crowds kept getting bigger and bigger in the theater. And uh, one night I did the show and I got upstage and somebody said, Robert De Niro just saw your show. He's in your dressing room waiting. And I said, Robert De Niro saw the show? They said, yeah. 
I said, wow. I got upstage, I went downstairs, and there was Bob De Niro. And he said, wow, that, that's the, that was the greatest one-man show I ever saw. He goes, that's a movie you did on stage. I said, yeah. You know, he said to me very frankly, he goes, if you sell it, they're going to come to me anyway. I said, look, Bob, I want to play Sonny, and I want to write the screenplay. That's the way I want it. And he said, look, I'll direct it, he said. I'll play your father. You play Sonny. You, you write the screenplay. And he goes, and if you shake my hands, that's the way it'll be. I shook his hand, and the rest, they say, is history. You can hear the full interview with Chaz Palminteri and about the return of his one-man show to New York City at our website, WFUVnews.org. That was part one of Madison Colombo's talk with actor and screenplay writer Chaz Palminteri. A more detailed discussion about the film A Bronx Tale can be found at WFUVnews.org. When you think of electronic music, you might think of DJs, dancing, and nightclubs, but maybe not the Met. This summer, the Metropolitan Museum of Art brought a new series to their rooftops. WFUV's Isabel Danzes got the opportunity to attend Sunsets, an electronic music series at the Met. The Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York City is a pinnacle in the art world. However, the Met offers more than just the stationary arts. Met Live Arts is the Met's chapter that showcases the art of music, movement, sound, and more. This summer, they brought a new genre of music and performance to the Met, electronic music. The Met hosted DJs on its rooftop on Fridays and Saturdays throughout the summer. The series is to connect the Met audiences uh, with artists and communities that are dedicated to electronic music uh, and to really sort of elevate electronic music in a way sort of to show that it is, yes, it lives and it was born in clubs, but it is a serious compositional and artistic expression. That was Lee Moore Tomer, the head of Met Live Arts. The electronic music series is called Sunsets, and it actually follows in the footsteps of a virtual program called Sonic Cloisters. Sonic Cloisters is a program that occurred during the COVID-19 pandemic. But it actually is, um, it evolved as a, a, a successor to a series that we did during COVID that was called Sonic Cloisters, uh, where we presented electronic musicians uh, in different galleries in the cloisters and recorded them with um, ambisonic microphones and uh, beautiful video production. After the success of Sonic Cloisters, Met Live Arts decided to bring electronic music to the rooftop of the Met. According to Tomer, electronic music works well in the outdoor environment. She also feels that Sunset is a good way to bring electronic music to people. It really brought it home that electronic music is a mature and sophisticated genre that I think is uniquely suited to an outdoor environment. And so the audience can engage with it in a variety of ways from sort of engaging peripherally in an ambient way or very actively. Um, and I thought that that would be a good match for our summer series. Plus, I think that after two and a half years or however, however many years of COVID this has been, it would just be a good release for the soul. I went to sunsets on the roof of the Met. The rooftop looks out on the New York City skyline in a unique way. On the rooftop, people listened to music, chatted with each other, and enjoyed drinks. That was the music of MKL, a DJ and music producer. According to MKL, 
Having the opportunity to DJ at the Met is an honor. You know, maybe it's coincidental, but I think the timing is perfect. It just seems like, you know, as we slowly emerge out of pandemic, I think institutions are very much open to um, a lot of different genres. I think the respectability of DJs um, has gone up and the exposure. Maybe that has something to do with all the streaming that was happening in the pandemic and how that maybe, you know, help people get through their day. For MKL, DJing and electronic music is all about connection. For him, it's important to connect with the music and the audience. Overall, it just becomes a conversation uh, between the audience and myself. You know, we could only sort of get to these levels together. You can't really do it separately. A DJ can only be in their own head if they're playing for themselves. But, uh, you know, it's that beautiful energy of kind of rising and, you know, just kind of watching spirits kind of lift you know, in those type of settings. Bill Telepan, the culinary director at the Met, was on the roof for sunsets. He's made his way to the rooftop for many sunsets, and he agrees with MKL. The energy is unmatched. Well, it's, it's been amazing for us because it's been really, really well received, and, and it's packed every weekend. So, and I think, you know, after having talked to the DJs about what it is to them, uh, to them, from what I hear in the DJ world, it's one of the hottest places to be at this summer. Sunsets is free with admission to the Met and will run till September 3rd. That was WFUV's Isabel Danzes talking about Sunsets, an electronic music series on the Met's rooftop. Now we turn our attention to sports. WFUV's Mike Calamari and Taylor Massetta talk with Met's legend Ron Swoboda. Over the years, uh, we were fortunate enough to come to New York to uh, uh, autographing shows and other sorts of appearances and things, especially around, you know, anniversaries of that 1969 season. So we had plenty of time to talk to plenty of people about that season. But it just, you know, I, I spent 20 years in local television and you write your own copy and, and you feel like you have a sense of writing. I'm a, I'm a hard reader. I read a lot of stuff and all the time. And, you know, you, you, you felt like, you know, at some point in time, I think it was really the 50th anniversary, you know, and I'm not a kid anymore. And it's like, you're either going to write this thing or you're going to die and it's not going to happen. And, and if you don't get it done by the 50th anniversary, you're going to miss a marketing uh, opportunity. And um, I hate to make it sound so pecuniary, but that's, but that was kind of the thing you, You've been dealing with these issues for a long time, and it was fun to go back and talk to Tom Seaver and Jerry Kuzman and Ed Cranepool and Cleon Jones and go back and get their perspective on certain things that, uh, you know, that that happened to all of us. But but everything happens from your you know individual perspective. So I wanted to hear their side of it and put it in the book and. Actually, the um, it's funny, uh, Sarah Seaver, Tom's daughter, was at the Hall of Fame. And I just sent her a copy of my book uh, because uh, she 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 was interested in the last chapter, which was um, on the Met Wives uh, with my wife and Tom Seaver's wife, Nancy, and Nolan Ryan's wife, Ruth. They hosted the wives from those 69 guys in Texas a number of years back. And they got in touch with all of the women and it was for them and about them. And it was a magical weekend for them. 
um, my wife couldn't come home and talk about it without getting teared up. Because it meant so much to them. They did it for themselves. And they were an extraordinary bunch of women. And, and uh, whether they were still married, you know, they were casualties in that, uh, in, in, in that process, you know, marriages that broke. And, uh, but, but the women uh, went there and, uh, and, and, and really experienced uh, a reunion that meant so much to them. That's the last chapter in my book, and I liked it best. That was WFUV's Mike Calamari and Taylor Massetta talking to Ron Swoboda, former member of the New York Mets. And that's it for me. But you can check out the What's What weekly wrap-up every Friday for more features exclusively from the WFUV newsroom. And make sure to check out the WFUV's What's What daily podcast every Monday through Thursday after 3. It explores current events, culture, news, and hot topics surrounding the New York metropolitan area. You can subscribe where you get your podcast or find out more at WFUVnews.org. I'm Robin Shannon.